Yeah, Father, hearing, uh, hearing Gabe's story was just a fresh reminder that you bring people from death to life that you are writing redemption stories in this place and you have written many redemption stories in this place. Father, this is holy ground. I don't want this to just be another salt company that we attend. I don't just want this to be another Thursday that we do together, but I do pray, Jesus, that tonight the spirit would be heavy in this room, that you would speak to your kids through your word and that we would see the beauty of the gospel tonight, that we, all of us, would have our hearts indexed towards you in this moment, that we would be able to see you clearly, and we will trust that, Father, in these last couple weeks, would you do something miraculous? Would you do something here tonight? Would there be supernatural healing in this place? And would people turn from their sin, repent, and turn towards you? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, I want to begin the, the conversation tonight with a question, which is, What's a problem in your life that you can't solve? A problem in your life that you've tried almost everything to solve and you haven't been able to solve it. And the second question is, have you ever held a crying baby? Bummer. Oh, my gosh. It is ridiculous, especially in public. You're like, what are you doing? Are you trying to make me look bad? And the worst part about it is I don't actually have a baby, so it's always someone else's problem that becomes my problem. I'm like, you got you to gotta take the baby back. Impossible situation. Absolutely impossible. You have no idea. No one can whisper to a baby and let them know to stop crying. Everything you do just makes it worse, okay? Problem he cannot solve. Second problem that I thought of in our ministry in particular is that every Thursday night we have a very big problem that we talk about a lot, that we mention a lot, and that problem is that throughout the entire year I have not yet figured out how to drink water. Bummer. It's been a year-long process. If you're new to Salt Company, you're like, what is wrong with him? How can he not drink H2O? Yes, it's been a problem, okay? That's, anyways. That was my fake serious one. This is my actual serious one. I'm just going to ease you guys right into it. But as I begin to think about problems in my life that I couldn't solve, I actually begin to think about my own insecurities. And maybe you're here and you're like, okay, you know what? He seems like a relatively confident person. Wrong. I'm fragile. Very fragile. But, but it's been insecurities that I've actually struggled with my entire life, and I've been asking God, is this something that can actually be changed in me before I die? Will I ever get to the point where I won't actually feel like my worth is dependent on my performance? And maybe that's the case for some of you guys here in this room, that you walk into Salt Committee tonight feeling the burden of always trying to perform, always trying to identify yourself with your accolades and your performances. But it's a problem in my life that I struggle to solve, a problem in my life I cannot solve. And, and that's the question I have for you tonight. Is what is that problem for you in your life? And maybe for you, the problem in your life that you struggle to solve, that you can't solve, is actually forgiving someone in your life that has hurt you really deeply. It's been really, really hard because not only is it difficult to forgive that person, but it's actually an internal wound that you carry around with you everywhere you go. So you actually feel really, really lonely. Or maybe for you, it's actually the anxiety of a future family. And you grew up in a, either an unsafe home or a split home with hurtful parents or divorced parents. And you're thinking to yourself, will I ever be able to create a home that's safe? Will I ever be able to be a part of a home that I feel at home in? And maybe for you, the problem that you can't solve is actually the condition of habitual sin. That you've struggled with porn for years, and you don't want to actually struggle with porn every night. You don't want to have that be a part of your mental framework. You don't want to look at people with lust. 
You don't want to take image bearers of God and strip them down in your eyes, and you don't want your body to be, you don't want the dysfunction or dysmorphia of the way that you view your body to be dependent on what you see on screens. Or maybe for you, you're actually coming into Saul Company here tonight, and you've been living with this low-grade anxiety and depression because you're not sure if your life actually matters. That you live in a world with 7.7 billion people, and you're asking the question, does my life have a purpose? Does my life actually matter? And I think for all of us in this room, we carry into the room here tonight problems that we cannot solve. And so that's the question here tonight, is what do you do when you encounter problems that you cannot solve? Tonight, if you guys have your Bibles with you, I'd love if you would open up to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I know that's a bit of an obscure chapter, but we're going to literally the second most famous story in the entire biblical narrative, and that is David and Goliath, which is kind of exciting. So we'll be looking at that chapter tonight. And the big idea that I have for you is the problem belongs to the Lord. And we'll be looking at three parts, and the first part is the problem is real. Look with me to 1 Samuel 17, 31 through 33. I lied, 32 to 33. Okay. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight for him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Okay, Parker, let me know. We can take that down. Parker, let me know that when we have screens, like stuff on the screens, it's like blinding for most of you guys. So really sorry, but we don't know how to fix it. So anyways, we're just going to keep flying through. Okay, so I wanted to give you guys some historical context of this really, really famous story, right? Very, very likely all of you guys have heard of the David and Goliath story, likely from the season of Survivor. Does anyone watch Survivor? Like seven people like the show. Is it like a shameful thing to like that show? That season was awesome. Are you kidding me? Christian? Okay, okay. That's an inside joke for no one cares about that. Anyways, but this has a lot of, yeah, it's tough to recover from those, you know? Like, dang it, why did I do that? Um, I should stick to my manuscript more. Anyway, so let me give you guys some historical context of the story of David and Goliath. Okay, so David represents Israel, the people of God, and on the other side of this mountain valley range thing of the valley of Sukkot are Philistines. Now, the irony is this story has been told as a Sunday school story for like a really long time, which is a super bad idea, because actually when you look at the historical context, the Philistines have been oppressing, enslaving the people of Israel for 200 years. So this is not just a story of a young shepherd boy versus Goliath on the shepherd boy's shoulders last 200 years of oppression and slavery. Yeah, not a Sunday school story. I don't know why we tell this. But that's the context that we want. Okay. That was close. I'll be honest, guys. That one, I was like, okay, let me just do that. Okay. That was a close one. That could have sucked for a couple people up here. Um, but that's the context. That's the context in which we find ourselves with David and Goliath, this really, really high-tension moment in human history as we look at a story of a young shepherd boy taking upon the Goliath. But one thing that I want to kind of zone in on here is that Goliath was a genuinely real threat to the people of Israel. So the way that ancient warfare works, which I know this is kind of nerdy, but you got to let me do the context, okay? The way that ancient warfare worked is that there'd be two armies, and each army would set forth a champion, which is kind of a cool name, and they set forth a champion, and on the champion's back would ride the entire victory of the war. So here's what ha would happen. If Goliath wins, right, if David doesn't win and Goliath wins, the entire Israelite people would be enslaved, their men would likely be killed, 
the woman raped, and the kids enslaved. That's what wages on the war of a man with a sling versus this giant seven-foot-tall man. In that context, we find ourselves understanding what the Hebrew writers would have wanted to let us know, that Goliath was a genuinely real problem that stood on the, the foundation of a really broken situation. But here's what I love about this story, actually, is that Goliath, the problem in this story, isn't diminished or brushed over. And the reason why I wanted to point that out is because the Bible actually isn't a like, hypothetical, ethereal book. Okay, I think a lot of people, when they read the Bible for the first time, they're like, okay, this is from like thousands of years ago. This has no relevance to my life. But the Bible and Christianity are actually real. And the reason why I want you to see that is because Christianity and the Bible has an accurate look on the human experience. Because if you actually look at your life, you would recognize that there are problems in your life, like Goliath, that you cannot solve. There are actually problems in your life that are so broken that you cannot solve them on your own. And so I want us to see here that the problem is real. The problem of Goliath was real for David, and there are problems in your life that are absolutely real. And I know that might sound like a little bit of a confusing first point, like why are you saying that our problems are real? Of course I know my problems are real, but the reality is a lot of us actually don't assess our own problems. We kind of just make ourselves really busy. We're like, okay, I'm just going to get around my problems in any way. I'm not going to process the condition of my soul. And so you could live an entirely busy life for the next 70 years of your life and not address any of the broken fragmentations of your life. But what, what the Bible has to say and what Christianity offers you is a better route forward. Not distraction or dismissal, but actually hitting it straight on. So that's what I want us to do tonight as we look at the problems of our lives is I want us to look deeply into the problems that we have. But the second reason why I want us to know that suffering is real is because there will be a moment in your life where crisis will emerge. And here's what's true. I actually don't have to know your story, although I would love to know most of you guys, all of your guys' stories, not most. Not like there's a couple people I wouldn't want to know. That'd be kind of an odd thing to say. Anyways, <laughs> this is unfortunate. This is like a really serious part of the sermon too, you know? I don't know why I do this every time. Okay. We only have to do three weeks left of this. Okay, so anyways. I'm just going to stop. Let's just stop. We'll move on. We'll be fine. So anyways, suffering will occur in your life. And here's what I mean by that. Is there will come a time after college where following Jesus isn't cool. You won't have something like this. You won't have something on Thursday nights to come, hang out with your friends, and worship Jesus. But there will be a time in your life when radical suffering comes. Suffering that you can't answer by coincidence, karma, or just like logic. There will be suffering that feels so unfair. Suffering that feels so deep that you won't even understand how to talk to God about it. And those are the moments that people are most likely to leave the faith. Those are the moments that crisis is most likely to hit. And so the reason why... We need to understand that the problems today are real and the problems of the future are real is because tonight, my hope is that all of us would actually gain a deeper theology of suffering. That you would recognize that suffering is not a reason to leave the presence of God, but a reason to get in the presence of God. Suffering is not a reason to walk away from your walk with Jesus, but it's to walk into the valley with Jesus. That's what's true about suffering. And I love this quote that Tim Keller actually wrote while he had cancer on what he thought were maybe the last days of his life. This is what Kim Keller says about suffering. 
Christianity teaches that contra, which means or unlike, fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra karma, suffering is often a fair, but contra secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. See, the reason why I'm making a big deal about your problems being real and you recognizing that now and processing through the problems of your life now is because unless you walk with God through the valley now, you will not walk with God through the biggest valley of your life. And every single one of you in this room will have a moment where you will question, if not many moments, if God is real and if he is, then why are you suffering? And you will need a developed theology on suffering. That suffering is not a reason to run away from the presence of God, but to run into the presence of God. Not away from Jesus, but deeper into your walk with Jesus. Because here's what's true about when you know suffering from a Christian perspective. Not only is it real, but Jesus will meet you there. Second reason why we need to know that the problem is real is because unless you understand the depth of your pain, you will never understand the depth of your need. Here's a problem with most people in our modern day context. Most of you in this room aren't starving. Most of you in this room aren't on the streets right now. So most of us in this room, in the modern day kind of socioeconomic status, clan class, and I know people come from different backgrounds, I get it, but everyone in this room right now, you will be tempted to believe that you do not need God. And so you'll say, oh, I need Jesus, right? But you're like smiling while you say it. You're like, I need him. Oh, my gosh, he's so good. Like you'll say it like, I don't know. You won't say it like that. No one says it like that. I don't know why I would do that. That was so demeaning to like no one in this room. Okay. But you won't actually feel the need for God. And so the problem for a lot of you in this room is the reason why you won't have intimacy with Jesus for the rest of your life is not because he doesn't want you. Not because he doesn't desire a relationship with you, but because you subconsciously don't believe you need him. And so the way to actually understand that you need Jesus is to actually dive into the problems of your life. To ask yourself the question, why have I been enslaved to pornography for six years? Why can't I go a single day without being so insecure about who I am? Why do I look and compare myself with other people every single day of my life? Why do I kind of stand on the, on the basis of self-righteousness because I look at someone else's sin so that I don't have to look at mine? If you don't walk with Jesus through your need and you don't see the problem of your life, you will never have intimacy with Jesus. So unless you see the problem, you'll never understand the need, and then you'll never go to him for the treatment. So my next part of this question is how do we prepare? How do we prepare now for the valleys to come? Let's look at verses 34 or 34 to 37. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And where there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it from his mouth, which is very cool. It's like National Geographic stuff, you know? Anyways, if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, 
The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. If you want to know what uncircumcision means, we can talk after Saul coming off stage. It's an unfortunate conversation. has a lot of history. Anyways, I'm not going to explain it. First thing I want to point out here is something that God has been doing. I know I sound like a broken record, but something that God has been doing all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the lineage series. He's constantly choosing the weak, not the strong. He's constantly choosing the powerless, not the powerful, constantly choosing the oppressed, not the oppressor, to bring forth his providential plan for salvation for all people, which is so cool. Like, I remember okay, that, I feel like that's got to hit better. That is so cool. Like, I remember when I first read the Bible. I don't know if you guys are like this, but I kind of thought Christianity was like a rich man, white man religion. Like, I don't know. Brandon, your testimony really hit with me because I was like, I thought that too. And I remember thinking, that, that the whole idea of Christianity was for a certain sect of people. But then as I began to read the Bible, here's what I found. That God constantly chooses the shepherd, not the Goliath. He constantly chooses the broken, not the self-righteous. He constantly chooses the hurting, not the self-perceived as whole. And it's this beautiful thing that God does continually throughout the Old Testament. I don't know if you guys have thought about this. God, like this is a cosmic reality. God, when he came to earth, came as a peasant carpenter if I was God I'm like coming as Elon Musk do you know what I'm saying like peasant carpenter that just feels like bad game plan like that's like bad strategy you know but he chose to come as a peasant carpenter why because he wanted to experience all the suffering and pain of this world that so many of people do and isn't that like an intimate God isn't that just crazy anyways that's my first point. Second point is, I just, I just get enthralled every time I see that in the Bible because I'm like, that's beautiful. The second part of this passage that's actually really, really beautiful is that David was battle-tested to become battle-ready. Okay, so if you're taking notes, he was battle-tested to become battle-ready. Look with me to verse 37. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Okay, this is really, really important, so lean in with me here, okay? I want you to see that this passage teaches us that there's purpose to the ordinary and the mundane moments of your life. In the preparation for the valley of the battle, God put David in the pasture. And it's actually in the pasture, not the valley, with a staff and not a sword, that he gained the skills that he needed and learned the faithfulness of God to him. Guys, I just want to say, like, being a shepherd then was not cool. It's not now either, but it for sure was less cool then, for sure. And I've never actually smelled a sheep, but I can just assume sheep are smelly as heck, okay? So this is David's life. He's not on the forefront of the battle. He actually had three older brothers that were in this battle, and his dad was like, go get them cheeses and bread. Like, he was Uber Eats, you know? Like, he was not the soldier, okay? But he spent most of his life in the pasture, but what I love about this story is that's actually in the pasture that God battle-tested him so that he was ready for the battle in the valley. It was in the pasture that David learned how to fight off the lions and the bears, which is unbelievable. Like, I don't, even, I don't even know how he did that. But he did. And it's in the pasture that he learned that God was going to be faithful to him, that he would deliver him from the lion and the bear. Of course, he would deliver him from the Philistine in the valley. 
Okay, why do I belabor this point so much? The pasture is not sexy, nor is this life stage called being in college. Right, and I think a lot of us in this room, when we think about college, most of you guys, I hear you guys, you're like, I cannot wait to graduate. Downhill from there, okay? I just wanna say, it's just true. Like, it's just harder and harder, and like, you just sleep less over the length of your life. It's a bad deal, but it's true. Oftentimes, you look at your college years, and you're like, man, that's not where I wanna be. That's not the place that I wanna be. It doesn't feel sexy, it doesn't feel exciting. I don't make money, I lose so much money all of my life. It sucks, okay? It sucks, I get it. But what if God is trying to teach you what he taught David? That to be ready for the valley, you must be learning faithfulness in the pasture. And here's what that means for some of you guys in this room. I know you guys, because I was in college and I thought very similar thoughts. Some of you guys are here in this room and you're like, I'm going to take following Jesus pretty seriously later. I'm going to start really following Jesus when I have like three kids and I like want to put them into Christian education. I'm going to really start reading my Bible when I have more time, which, by the way, never exists, okay? You graduate college, you lose your time like crazy. That's just true. Or I'm going to start praying when I really need God. Or I'm going to start fighting sin when I have more responsibility. Here's what I'm saying. is some of you are here and subconsciously you're living as if the future is when you'll start taking following Jesus seriously. But here's what's true, is you never know when that valley is going to hit you. And the valley will come. And unless you are battle-tested in the pasture, you will not be battle-ready in the valley. And that's my fear for a lot of us in this room. And I've seen it happen time and time again. I'm just kind of being a Debbie Downer tonight. It's like, wow. But it's true. I see people love Salt Company in college. I see people love the hype of youth group in high school. I see people love passion and all the different cool churches out there. And here's what's true for some of you in this room. You love the fun, but once you hit the valley, you're not battle tested. You haven't actually had intimacy with God. You haven't taken your walk with Jesus seriously enough. So by the time you get there, here's what happens. Your flimsy foundation crumbles. And that's my fear. And so here's what I'm asking you to do. Here's the application of this point is would you take your time in the pasture seriously? Would you recognize that your college years are not just a time to pass by, not just a time to have a couple fun years, not just a time to quote unquote live it up, but your college years are preparing for you a lifetime of following God? Would the valley that will be coming, that was, that was confusing, I like try to do it in my mind but I couldn't think of it, I'm gonna rephrase that. Would you actually take walking with Jesus in the pasture seriously so that you learn that God will deliver you from the mundane, ordinary struggles and the difficult struggles in your college years so that by the time you get to the valley, you're not just battle-tested, you're battle-ready? Okay. We can move on here. To review, to fight the battle in the valley, we must see that the problem is real, the preparation is necessary, and Part three, the power belongs to the Lord. Look with me to verse 45. I'm not going to comment. I'm strong. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, cut off your head, 
And I'll give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Yike, okay. And that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and a spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand on his bag, took out a stone, and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. First of all, I just love how David speaks here. Like, it is so cool. It is like such a crescendo of the goodness of God. But what I love even more about what he says, more than what he says, is how the subject matter is in himself. David is not here boasting in his own power, in his own ability, but he boasts in the Lord. In verse 45, look back to verse 45 with me if you have your phone with you or your Bible or whatever. That David fights. Not with swords or spears, but with, not with power or size, but with the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel. Verse 46, that it won't be David who delivers Goliath into his hands, but the Lord God Almighty who delivers Goliath into his hands for victory. In verse 47, because of all of that, because it was never David's strength in the first place, because it was God's, the glory would go to God, not David. So here's what's true about David is in the pasture he saw the power of God delivering him from the lions and the bears. So by the time he came to Goliath, by the time he got into the valley, he was battle-tested and he was battle-ready and he had a sling ready and one stone took down Goliath. Okay, so that's the end of the story. David wins, Goliath loses. You guys all know that. But here's actually one of my fears for some of you guys is you've actually heard this story, and the application has been something like this. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make, make, make an imitation, so don't be mad at me. But it was something like this, right? David conquered Goliath. You too can conquer Goliath. David was courageous. Therefore, be courageous and kill all of your giants. So the application was based not on what God can do for you, but on what you can do to defeat your own giants. Here's the bummer with that. That is not just an incomplete, but an incorrect way to read this biblical story. And it's just darn bummer because that's just not the point of the story, okay? The point of this story is not what you can do in your courage, not what you can do in your faith, but actually what Jesus has done in his courage. See, the story of a king who fought a great foe, the story of an unexpected victor in a dark valley, the story of David and Goliath isn't only about David and Goliath, but it's actually pointing to a far greater battle that would take place one day. Around 1,000 years from this day, there would be another cosmic battle that would take place on the Mount of Moriah, not the Mount of Sokah. I want you to read verse 54 with me. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. Okay, here's what's really, really cool. I was so excited when I read about this online. Okay, very, very cool. David kills Goliath, takes his head, probably a big head. Goliath was likely around eight feet tall, so that's a big head. Takes his head about 20 miles to Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? That's important because he would actually bury his head in a mountain there, in a mountain called Golgotha. See, the mountain of Golgotha stands for the place of the skull, and that mountain of Golgotha is otherwise known as the Mount of Calvary. 
the mountain where Jesus would wage war against sin, is where David's victory was. That's cool. Come on. That's like prophetic, you know? All right. Some of you guys need to nerd out more about the Bible because that's fantastic. That's like prophecy. It's a thousand years. David takes a head. It's awesome. Okay. Let me continue. I digress. Here's the point of the story of David and Goliath. It's not about your courage or your ability to hold on to hope in the midst of pain. It's not about you even really conquering the giants in your life. It's to show you that you are not David in this story, but you're actually the Israelites. And the Israelites, they were not like David. They did not trust in the promises of God. They did not trust in the favor of God. They actually were dismayed and trembling. But the point of this story is not for you to be David, but for you to trust in the one who was David for you. To trust in the champion of Jesus Christ himself. Here's how I want to end tonight. I can call up the band, that kind of stuff. Here's what's true. Is Jesus recognized that the problem was real. That the greatest problem of your life is not that your past was painful or that your present is hard or that your future provokes anxiety. The greatest problem of your life is that unless you are brought near to the Son and to the throne of grace, you won't know him for eternity. Unless you repent of your sin and follow Jesus, you won't know true life. See, here's what Jesus knew about us, even before we knew this about us. That our greatest problem was not that we had things going wrong in our life, but our greatest problem is that we are sinners in desperate need of grace. And here's what Jesus knew, is that sin kills. The reality of sin is that it kills you. It enslaves you. It entraps you. And it eventually, eternally will condemn you if you do not repent and follow Jesus. But not only does it kill you, it actually kills others. So I'll come here. I'm about to ask a really, really hard question in a second. And this is going to make some of you guys really uncomfortable, but hope I built enough trust for the year. What's the number one reason why people don't come to Salt Company? What's the number one reason why people won't step into a gospel environment where they can hear the word of God, worship Jesus, and be changed forever? It's actually because there are a lot of Christians on our college campuses that come to Salt Company on Thursdays and then go to TIFFs on a Friday. It's just true. We all know it. That's the number one reason why atheists won't actually step into the church. It's not because they have an intellectual debacle with the, king, with the Jesus that is called the Christ, but it's actually because there are Christians in their life that wave the Christian flag really, really high, but they live out habitual sin without repenting. That's why. So I'm gonna say something hard to you right now that I hope carries with you for the next 30 years of your life. That your sin doesn't just kill you, it kills your gospel impact on others. So when you go to the parties on the weekends, here's what you're saying as you hold a red solo cup in your hand, is I would rather drink this beer than see a stranger in this room come to know Jesus. I recognize that this is uncomfortable, but there's some of us in this room that do not realize the impact of our sin. And here's what Jesus understood about our sin, is that it kills us. It kills us and it kills others. And so here's what he did. He took upon that sin to himself because he realized that we actually couldn't pay for our sin. And so he was killed on the cross so that we could live. So I'll come to the point of the David and Goliath story is not that we conquer our giants, but that our champion Jesus conquered the giant of sin. And so tonight, Rachel's gonna talk a little bit about it, but you have a chance to repent. 
And I know that's an uncomfortable word, but truly, I really do believe the Spirit of God is calling some of you in this room to say, Jesus, okay, I recognize that my greatest problem was not the sin of my past, the shame of my past, the difficulty of my present, or the anxiety that I have about my future, but my greatest problem is that my sin separates me from you. But here's the thing that Jesus did on the cross, on that Mount of Golgotha. He too waged war against sin and he won. So the victory is there. All you have to say is I'm gonna get on my knees and ask Jesus to change me. Because the reality is, Salt Company could be a place where we just say nice things for years. And we'd probably like bust through these walls. But here's what the Bible calls us to do. It calls us to lay down all our preconceived notions of who we are and what we do and repent and follow Jesus. So the story of David and Goliath is not you go fight your sin, but it's Jesus has fought his sin. Jesus has fought for your sin already. He has gained victory. And now, because he lives in you by his spirit, you can wage war on all the problems of your life. You can break the shackles of sin in your life. But it requires us to raise our hand and say, Jesus, I'm in desperate need of you. Change me. Let me pray. Yeah, Father, that's a hard word. And I'm sure that feels quite uncomfortable to some of us in this room. But Jesus, I do pray that all of us would raise our hands and say, we need you. You were able to see the problem of our lives very, very clearly. The deepest problem of our life is not the pain of the past, the difficulty of the present, or the anxiety of our future. The deepest problem in our life is that unless we repent of our sin and turn to you, we won't know you for eternity. And so Jesus, we do pray that you do something supernatural in this place, that there would be a repentance in this room, that we would turn from sin and turn towards you and see that you are way more beautiful than any of the sin of our past or any of the sin of our present. And we would see that our champion Jesus defeated the Goliath, the condemnation of sin, the payment of sin, the allure of sin on the cross so that we too can finally live. Would we worship you tonight? Amen.